Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. Uh, I'm Terry Fakes, and this week my normal partner, Cole Fakes, is out of town on a trip. And so I thought it would be great to take this opportunity to talk with someone that I've been wanting to get on this podcast for a long time. So let me introduce to you a close friend of mine and a compatriot in ministry for a lot of years, Dr. Cliff Sanders. Cliff, thanks for being with us today. Hey, it's great to be with you, Terry. Well, you just retired from 30 years, I believe, as the head of, uh, I won't get the title right, but you were basically the head of the Department of Religion at Mid-America Christian University, where you'd been teaching a long time. Yeah, we called that the School of of Ministry, but yeah, for for all those years. School of Ministry, and before that, though, a lot of people don't know this, uh, back before you got your doctorate from Mm -hmm. Asbury, you were a practicing pastor. You pastored churches before that. Two churches. Two churches. One in Houston and one in uh, Louisiana. So, yeah. Cool. And so you retired, though, for a purpose, not because you got tired of the kids. (laughs) I know you miss your students, and I know you love Mid-America and the faculty there. But there was a compelling reason for you. You and the university had gotten together to start the School of Wesleyan Studies. Uh, Was it a few years ago? Yeah, probably seven years ago, we started kind of... uh, working around some of our teaching and some of our, our mat, uh, materials like that and thought, well, why don't we kind of organize this and put this in some kind of conceptual framework? And so, yeah, we did that, wrote a book, and uh, started to try to at least to be a service to churches and people in ministry to sort of help them understand what that might mean to have some uh, understanding of Westland theology. You know, I remember at the time, I thought it was a really good idea, Cliff, because uh, I mean, I, you know, my view, I don't know if I've ever said it here, but I'm not really one of those where you've got to be Calvinist or Wesleyan. And I know you are quite aware that uh, I'm, I'm in favor of Orthodox Christianity. Absolutely. And, so, <laughs> and both are, so I don't take it very personally. But yeah. I've always felt like in the Wesleyan world, the mm-hmm. you know Christian churches, Wesleyan churches, mm-hmm. Church of God, which yeah. obviously is the tradition of crossings, is probably not, hasn't had a strong, maybe I'm doing mm-hmm. a disservice here, but I didn't feel like there was a strong center for teaching and equipping pastors. Was that part of why you wanted to do this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think, you know, we have other schools, but um, they seem to have other maybe points of interest or points of emphasis. Mm-hmm. And our school, for whatever reason, seemed because of some of our faculty and some of the people there that we really wanted to sort of be known as a place that would um, discuss, generate uh, materials from a Westland standpoint, both academic in the classroom as well as books, but also sort of be a place where people could kind of look to 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 say, are there materials and things that we could use? So, yeah, I I think that we kind of became the center of that uh, in terms of the interest. So. Well, and just recently, something that really redounded to my benefit personally is Crossings Church, uh, for a variety of reasons, asked if we could host, physically host that here. And Mid-America agreed. I mean, it's still obviously a a very committed to the partnership, but that resulted in, let's just bring this down to where the rubber meets the road. (laughs) So you and I get to office like two doors apart now. And and one of the reasons for this podcast is to let people know what you're doing, but also 
this has been a blessing to me, Cliff, because well, you and I get to talk more often, and we have... What we're going to talk about today on this podcast is what I get to do with you almost daily. <laughs> and so I'm just trying to make our listeners envious here. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but, and here's what I really wanted to talk to you about is this is one I know that's near and dear to you and I thought mm. all of our listeners would appreciate too. And it has to do with the idea of theology. Mm-hmm. And I know that sometimes we, when you hear the word theology, maybe you think of six-inch thick tomes yeah. on systematic theology and you think of right. arcane questions and really mm. complicated I I know that you are an academic, but I also know that that's not how you think of theology. Mm. And so maybe to kick off this discussion, let me ask you this. Do you think everybody has a theology, whether they mm-hmm. consciously realize it or not? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it seems to me, you know, when we hear people discuss theology, oftentimes I've, with students, would say, well, now, wait, what is theology? It's the study of God. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everybody has some concept of God, whether an atheist that they said there is no God, mm-hmm. uh, to a person who believes in a being called God. So I think everyone has a theology. The question is, is it coherent? Right. Is it faithful to what we would consider the scriptures? Is it organized? Um, is, it, uh, is it something that's had thoughtful consideration. So yes, I think everybody everybody has a theology. Everybody has a concept of God or a sense of if there is this being. And so yeah, yeah I think everybody's got everybody's it. living out. Yeah. I, I would argue, <clears throat> yeah. you know, that everybody's living out what is effectively a we'll call it a story, a narrative, yeah. a worldview, and, and I would also just say a theology, a belief about yeah. Uh, you know, mean, ultimate yeah. meaning and that kind of thing. Yeah. Here's a quote. I think I'm attributing this correctly to Matt Chandler, <laughs> but he basically said uh, once, everybody has a theology. It's just that some people are heretics. <laughs> now, I probably <laughs> wouldn't say it in quite that in-your-face yeah. way, although I right. appreciate Matt. Yeah. But unexamined ideas about God yeah. can lead us off track a little oh, bit. Oh, you know, I... Um, the... In teaching students, uh-huh. trying to help bring this down to where they are, uh, I communicated to them over the years. There are four questions I think that are theologically based in that every I said every student, every person, especially anyone in ministry, needs to be asking and answering. And one is, is there a God? Right. I mean, that's pretty fundamental. Yeah. And if there is a God. And according to some research I read just the other day, a, a large amount of Americans believe in a being that they might ascribe to God. Right. But the second question is this. If there is a God, then what is the character of this God? Mm-hmm. Because we're all, like you say, living out what we believe about this God. What What is the character or nature of this God? Is this God distant? Is this God imminent? Is this God interested or concerned those things so what is the nature of this god then the third by the way before you leave that just to put this in that is uh one of the books that you wrote we use here quite a bit it's on that topic basically making sense out of spirituality yeah Yeah. it's basically really is talking about okay this god that we say we believe in yeah who is this god yeah, one of the yeah one of the quotes that I read years ago that just was staggering to me. Uh-huh. W- William Temple, the the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, 
made a statement. He said this, if our view of God is incorrect, the more religious we are, the worse it is. And then he ends it with, it would be better for you to be an atheist. And that shook me when I thought this notion of the character of God, the nature of God. Again, this is theology proper. Who is this God? Yeah. Of course, Tozer, Adam Tozer always makes the statement that the most important thought that you've ever had is mm-hmm. your view of God. So, yeah, I mean, this, this is where, like you say, the, the, even those huge tomes of books are attempting to help us understand what is this, what is this God like? Uh, and and if 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 we're in temple goes on to say that uh-huh. if we open ourselves to an incorrect view, we're being formed by something other than God. Right. So. No, that's powerful. Yeah. I, I just think I thought that was interesting because I know that's an interest of yours yes. because I've read your works and I thought yeah. that is a crucial question. So I'm guessing we'll see what number three is here in a yeah. second, but the the first two build. Believing in a God is a first step, but then understanding who is this God yeah. I believe in. Yeah. So what's the third question well, you yeah, think the thir- is key? Yeah, the third question is, okay, if I come to some understanding of the nature of this God, then what does this God expect from me? Hmm. Is there What is there in this relational God, this relationship, what does this God expect from me? Uh, right. It's not just simply I have a concept or an idea, but as you said, living it out, what what does this God expect of me? Is there any part in this relationship with this one called God that I play? It, what's my part? It, what? Not that there are equal parts, right? but that there are parts. Right. So what does this God expect? And then the fourth one, I think, is a really a significant theological notion that having been a pastor and having been around people, when people really have problems, mm-hmm. illness, uh, setback in a career, family crisis. Right. I think the fourth question is the one that we have to really help pay attention to, and that is, what can I expect from this God? Can I expect this God to shield me from all problems? Right. C- can I expect this God to make life easy? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that question is what I've noticed with students and with people that I've just and adults have been around that you pastored. Yeah, that that if they don't if they haven't given some thought to that or some attention to that in a theological understanding, like, okay, what what can I expect from this God? What I remember when Becky, my wife, <clears throat> had cancer mm-hmm. and you know she's thirty nine years old. Yeah. And it just shocked us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wondered, okay, how will we, how will we navigate this? Right. We'd never had anything serious like that. Uh-huh. And I, I remember um, in talking with Becky and walking through that, that because she had given some thought to who this God is and what does this God expect from me and then what can I expect from this God— Terry, the, the amazing thing that, that with Becky was that when she had that illness, she never said, why did this happen to me? Hmm. She said, why not? Yeah. And I was just struck 
as we process that to say she knows or believes that the scriptures teach that God is not promised to shield us from every problem. Right. And I think had she not had that theological understanding, mm-hmm. that illness and that experience could have caused some real wreckage. Right. Because um, she had, again, come to some, I think, awareness. This is what I can, I can expect God to be with me. I can expect him to, to care for me. I can expect him to be present. I didn't have, she didn't have the expectation that I'll never get sick and never have problems. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've noticed in pastoral interactions is that bad theology, and what I mean by bad theology is exactly what you just outlined, is is a misunderstanding about those questions. What does God expect of me? What can I expect of God? Yeah. Who, who, who God really is? Or an insufficient, incomplete answer sets us up to have unrealistic or untrue mm-hmm. expectations of God. and. Yeah. Boy, that just seems to really unravel our world oh. when God doesn't seem to follow through yeah. uh, with something that, again, is the result of bad theology, <clears throat> yeah. meaning an untrue view of God. Yeah, I, it, when in our life, and as and again, as you said, you've been involved in pastoral ministry for years, that the real pain that this causes, mm-hmm. I mean, when people feel like, you know, I've been told this, and then this is what's happening, and that... They not only are dealing with the crisis, whether it's health or like those kind. Yeah, this becomes a real theological uh, problem. Right. Like, okay, I can't depend on this God. Right. And wow, I I don't know how people. I mean, going through this thing with Becky was hard. Uh huh. But I don't know how you could juggle or navigate having a a life threatening illness, and then having a theological or a or a a faith crisis at the same time. Yeah, uh, I agree. Cause I just think whew. that our faith provides, you know, just back into the secular way of talking about this an ultimate meaning, Yes, something that's uh, mm-hmm. transcendent. And I remember just to think of one of my favorite as in, he's kind of the poster child for secular philosophers is Nietzsche mm. once said, you know, the thought of suicide has gotten me through many a dark night. And mm. I thought if you don't have yeah. a transcendent meaning, you're left with a crisis yeah. without any framework into which to make sense out of That's, it. I, and I, it breaks your heart to see Christians do that because yeah. it comes from just that uh, mm-hmm. uh, inaccurate or yeah. insufficient view yeah. of God. Yeah, and the pain that it causes. You know, right. Even if people get through the job loss or they get through the illness, they come out on the other side and they have now these deep doubts Again, rooted in false expectations yeah. about God now. And so now their theology, you're again living it out, was based in an incorrect or insufficient understanding. And now it's in some kind of almost um, di- broken understanding. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I, in, my, in my view, and students would laugh at it like that, I say everything is theology. Right. I mean, it, it matters uh, how you view God, how you view yourself, how you view the world in which you inhabit, uh-huh. uh, how you view, like you say, a ultimate purpose, ultimate uh, experience, existence. Yeah. Uh, you can't avoid it. Well, you know, one of the things kind of related to this, and but also into this idea of theology, from a Wesleyan point mm-hmm. of view, 
one of the distinctives, I guess, uh, not necessarily in disagreement with other theological perspectives, but certainly highlighted in Wesleyanism is the idea of love mm. as, how would you phrase that? Not so much as God's, I don't know if it's his highest characteristic mm -hmm. or if it's the lens through which you look at mm -hmm. God. How would you say Wesley, mm -hmm. his idea of love as an attribute fits with God? Yeah. You know, Wesley famously said that love was God's darling attribute. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, you know, it's not, but it's, but in Wesley's view, it's not an attribute among others. Like you've got all these attributes and it's just his favorite. Yeah. Uh, one of the authors that I read years ago that, that really helped me in this area was a, a lady named Mildred Bangs Winecoop. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called A Theology of Love uh -huh. and, and suggested that and by the way, Ken Collins has written another book, um, Holy Love and the Shape of Holiness, is a great book in this same area. Uh -huh. That Wesley's understanding of God's primitive nature, he takes some of this, I think, from Arminius, that God's primitive nature is love. Holy love, though. Yes. It, it, it's not what we think this kind of sentimental right. kind of uh, you know secular idea, but it's but God's primitive nature as love, and that every other, you know, the Eastern Orthodox calls these energies. Yes. Uh, it, but I'm going to say all of these other, uh, I don't like these word features, but all these other expressions, that God's justice is an expression of his holy love. Yes. That God's sovereignty is an expression of his holy love. That his mercy is an expression of his soul. So I, I think that's how Weinkoop understands. She says that you have to understand holy love. That's the hermeneutic for understanding Wesley. That's a good way of saying that, yeah. I think. You know, one of the implications of that that's not really very, uh, certainly not dis disputable or people don't really <laughs> argue about this is, one of the implications, it seems to me, of that is that God is a relational God. And yes. I realize you can get at that another way. Yeah. But that seems to me to reinforce back to this idea of theology is what you know about God and God's attributes and who he is is really important. But one of the key things is the idea of a relational God. Yeah, Wankoop says she, she argues that what is fundamentally human is the ability to love. Now you can love the wrong things. Right. We call that sin. Oh, it's sin. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yes. Uh, but but this relational um, template that this God and this creature that He's created His image uh -huh. is that. Now I think again the, the distinguishing feature of Wesley to not to get lost in the culture uh -huh. or just a cultural understanding is this idea of holy love, and and holy love is not indifferent mm -hmm. to suffering or to sin or indifferent to, to issues. Right. It, it makes distinctions. Right. And is, and is supportive of, I think, you know, I've talked before that, that I kind of tried to formulate this in my own mind that, that, that God's love, holy love, um, will not give out on you. Mm -hmm. It's inexhaustible. That God's love will not give up on you. You can't frustrate it. Right. And God's love will never give in to you. And that's a key one. Yeah. That's the holy love piece to say mm -hmm. 
God's love will not give in to you. It will not call evil good and good evil. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that Wesley really drives that point. And uh, it's interesting to me, and, and it's not a, I mean, I, I understand the context, but in the Reformation, and this is where Wesley, in his theology, his favorite verse is Galatians 5, 6, where nothing matters, neither circumstance, but, but faith working through love. That Wesley's contention was that uh, maybe the Reformers didn't go far enough when our solas. Uh-huh. They had sola scriptura, you know, sola right. fide. Fide, uh-huh. But there's nothing about love. Right. Now, that didn't mean they weren't loving. It didn't mean they didn't see the importance sure. of it. right. But it wasn't sort of part of the mentality there, that there was no sola caritas. You know, it's interesting. I have a theory. You can shoot this down or, <laughs> uh, or be kind and run with me on this. But I do think to some extent, mm-hmm. because I, I'm always careful with Wesley, with, with anybody I <clears throat> read, is to say that what they said doesn't necessarily represent everything they think. Right. And it seems to me that those early reformers, you know, 100 yeah. years before Wesley, were in a, in a context of reaction yes. against the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. which had deeds and so they focused on faith alone. Yes. I'm really simplifying this, <laughs> and so I'm losing a lot of nuance no. here. But fundamentally, I'm not. They may or may not, but it's not that they didn't care about love. No, you said. But the idea was their biggest thing they were pushing against was works based. Wesley, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, was in a time in England, a hundred years mm-hmm. later or so, and he is pushing to some extent, or reinvigorating kind of a dead religion yes. of going through the motions, but there's no heart yes. to it. Would that be a fair representation of how love yeah. may have come to the forefront in his preaching? Oh, oh, absolutely. And let me say, I and I've made this statement that I think you're right, that the Reformers were dealing with a sovereign church mm-hmm. that had salvation. Right. And the Reformers said, no, no, we're going to relocate salvation in Christ, right, in God, and he is sovereign. And so I, I think you're exactly right. The so when Wesley comes around, near two, nearly 200 years, Almost, yeah. that, that um, you're right, this idea of, of kind of stayed just uh, being a, kind of a Christian by name, he, he made the observation or statement that he said that what he was about his one purpose was to bring about uh, an increase in heart religion. And he quotes Henry Skorgal, who's a great Scottish pastor, when he said that he would be there, to, that he was, his, the revival was to increase the life of God in the soul of man. Oh, that's a great phrase. Oh, it's a great book. Uh-huh. Uh, Skorgal wrote that, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That, um, that uh, so you're right, Wesley is in his context, he Love to God and love to others uh, is uh, is really the 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 milieu that they're in, and right. so I think that was why again part of that was why he emphasizes. Well, he emphasized, and you know, there's a sense in which because he was not a quote theologian in the sense that he didn't set out to write a systematic right. theology. He was a preacher, right? And so he was trying to bring the gospel to people. Yeah. And it seems to me that in every age. We don't change the gospel. Mm-hmm. We we need to, as Paul said, 
We need to proclaim the whole counsel of God. But there are certain points that cultures need to hear Oh yeah, more than others. And yeah. it seems in Wesley's time, they needed to understand what it meant uh, to, love, to God love God and to experience the love of God. Yes. Yeah, there was a time, you know, there in that particular area, you, you know, I, one of my, you and I were talking about this the other day. Um, William Wilberforce was a mm -hmm. friend of Wesley in the sense that Wilberforce was younger, lots, lots younger. Uh -huh. He became a, he grew up Anglican, but he became a Methodist in his life. And he fought constantly against slavery mm -hmm. in England and, and eventually helped it. Well, uh, uh, Wesley's last letter that he ever wrote before he died was to William Wilberforce to encourage him. Huh. So in doing a little research on that, I, I looked at Wilberforce, um, uh, to your point, Wilberforce, in a book he wrote called Practical Christianity, made the statement, how, on, how, on, how could Christian Britain uh, uh, tolerate chattel slavery? Right. And his famous statement is that the reason that Britain was able to do that is because the people of Britain had cold hearts because they had empty heads. Yes. And he said the antidote to this was a, uh, get the right, he said the antidote to this, to their cold hearts, because uh -huh. they had empty heads, was a large dose of the peculiar doctrines of the Christian faith. Yes. There again, he saw theology. Well, back to your questions. It's not so much doctrines as these disconnected uh, <laughs> propositional right. statements as it is doctrine as in who, answering your questions. What does God require of me? What is the nature of God? Yeah. What can I expect of him? him? In other words, real life theology yeah. as opposed to up in the clouds. Yeah. Sometimes what I think we mischaracterize theology as yeah. purely an intellectual exercise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful. Yeah, I yeah, I and I I am so, listen, I'm th I know you are too. I'm thankful for those academic theologians yeah, oh, that sat there and wrote uh, because Wesley borrows from them, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you're right that, that this idea of, of theology, uh, Wesley often said, I, I write practical sermons or, or common sermons for common people. Right. And he was trying to, to again, revive. Uh, he wasn't trying to say there's something new here. He's trying to revive what was happening to, at least in his thinking, Anglicanism in those days. Yeah. And, you know, he was uh, criticized. and for being, I've, I'm trying to remember the phrase, I've read it, you will remember mm -hmm. it, but basically uh, at the time that whole movement was criticized as being too emotional. I'm not Enthusiasts. Enthusiasts. That's, that's what they the called it. You're an enthusiast. You're an enthusiast. <laughs> too was a, too was... emotional. But at the same time, the interesting thing to me about Wesley, and I didn't mean for this to turn into all about Wesley, yeah. but he's admirable to me for a couple of reasons because he avoids the one-dimensional nature of what I consider American theology in the 21st century. We have one-dimensionalized a lot of this, and we've even tried to one-dimensionalize Wesley. As mm. in, uh, Wesley's the guy, all he talks about is love. Yeah. And then if you hear that love in the secular context, yeah. you get a really mushy kind yeah. of religion. But this is the Wesley who not only talked about holy love, but had the Methodist societies, oh. which were all about 
bringing, yep. I say Ephesians 4, 1, you know, yeah. live in a manner worthy of your calling. In exactly. other words, how you live yeah. is also important. What, yeah. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I, you know, I... Or is there a need to reconcile those well, two things? It, it, in 18th century England, the notion, uh, if you read his journals and read some of his uh, works and read his, he'll report that he went to the bishop in, in London Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that that the idea that a person could could know God and know that they're saved is completely off the radar. Nobody in Anglicanism in the 18th century thought you could even know right. you, that you couldn't have any kind of assurance. Uh, and so this enthusiasm that um, they accused him of was this. It wasn't enthusiasm like people are jumping around and uh-huh. screaming and yelling. It's the enthusiasm that you can actually know that you're a child of God. Right. And that was the great uh, contra- or uh, uh, contention that he had to fight against. Because if, in some ways, if there was anybody who was not emotional, in some ways it was John Wesley. He was so methodical, right? And you know, he went, he, he studied and, and taught at Oxford. When Logic. you read his journals, the things he recorded, yeah, uh, his his spiritual mood during yes. The day. I mean, he was type A to the extreme. He was, and he, uh, I mean, he he was a methodical, uh, logical, uh, you know, in, in his quadrilateral. Way he interpreted truth was scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Yes. But experience did not mean how you feel. Right. It meant what has been, in some sense, what is God doing in the people of God. So, right. yeah, he, it, it's kind of funny, you know, you read it that, that the worst they could call him was an enthusiast. Yeah. <laughs> but that was back in that sort of, I guess, you know, what I can read is a rather cultured or rather enculturated Christianity. You know, just thinking through some things I've been reading lately, and you th- you think about the reformers in the early 1600s, mm-hmm. basically preaching by faith alone through grace alone yeah. in Christ alone, etc. Uh, you know, as in basically pulling people back to the God of the Scriptures. Yeah. And then in the late 1700s, mid to late 1700s, you get Wesley dealing with a a, a kind of a dead religion in the sense yeah. that there's no heart to it and pulling them back to highlighting the mm-hmm. love. And then I've been going through with a couple of groups rereading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's now come to the 1900s, mm. early 1900s, the cost of discipleship. And yeah. he is in the Lutheran church. Right. And where it's come by that time is an acquiescence mm-hmm. and a disconnectedness from the world. And, a, and they have the opposite problem where in Wesley's time, the Anglicans didn't think you could know you were saved. Yeah. Bonhoeffer talks a lot about cheap grace, meaning yeah. everybody thinks they're saved and they have no evidence <laughs> of that whatsoever. That's right. And yeah. it seems like there are, quote, theological yeah. pitfalls throughout all ages. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, You know, that there there is this self-correction. Yeah. You know, that as we read the scriptures, as we study the uh, church fathers and those, there's always this kind of necessary kind of, if you will, correction. Uh, and I, I agree. I think, again, I thank God for the reformers. I don't want to have any sense in that regard. And then Wesley brings us to this notion, uh-huh. Bonhoeffer. Uh, so, yeah, I think the work 
of theology, you know, doing theology. That in, in the academy, that's the statement. It's not studying theology, it's doing, doing theology. Right. That's a great way to talk yeah, that, about that. That, that. that we have to be doing it. There's a great little book by a guy named Kelly Kupik called A Little Book for New Theologians. Hmm. And it does a lot of this. It's a real short little book. It's kind of a takeoff, I think, of, of um, uh, oh, the uh, Little Exercise for Young Theologians. His name just escapes me. I don't think I've a read A Little that. Exercise for Young Theologians by um, Helmut Teleke. This is kind of a takeoff of that, but uh, he he's quoting theologians that say, you know, that that this whole idea of doing theology, of 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 not only studying it, learning it, but how does it work out in our orthodoxy to our orthopraxis? To, right. The, and so I think the church is always in that kind of self-correcting, saying, you know, our practice maybe needs to get a little more refining here. So, yes. Yeah. Almost circular. Yeah. As in, a right thinking brings about right practice, yes. which corrects our yeah. our errant thinking. Yeah. Well. Fast forwarding, you know, as we look at these different eras, and we yeah. just picked a few, and the theological pitfalls that preachers are bringing people back from, what do you think would be a pitfall, a theological pitfall, or something we yeah. preach to bring I knew people back that. in the 21st century? Well, you have experience with 30 years worth of students, and I know mm-hmm. you've seen trends, and I'm not asking you to comment on your students. I'm just yeah. saying pick one mm-hmm. that you think in 21st century America is kind of that. This is a theological pitfall. This is a hole we don't want to fall into. Yeah. Anything you know, come to your you, mind? Yeah, you know, you and I are older, uh-huh. and so probably... Um, I, I'm not speak for you. I speak for myself. That uh-huh. that the 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 struggle that I had growing up was legalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sense of I wasn't good enough. You know, there was a lot of that. But if I'm any judge of what's going on now uh, with students or people and being in ministry like that, I, I really think that the theological challenge, and this I think is deeply rooted. In Wesleyan theology is that is that we're we're at a place that Wesley was at on this antinomian uh, license kind mm-hmm. of thing, almost to the extent to say it's kind of carrying still Bonhoeffer yes. had this idea that God loves me too much, He cares about me too much, that He would never be uh, you know be concerned about something I did right. And, and so I, if there is a trend I see, and I think related to that, and, and I'm not sure how to even say this correctly, is there is a loss of a sense of God's transcendence. Mm, good point. Yeah. To a, a sense of eminence that is almost uh, foolish. Yes. It, it, it's almost foolishness that... W- that, that there's a loss of a sense of God's transcendence, that this is God we're talking about. Uh-huh. And, uh, and and this kind of eminence that's almost foolishness. It puts us in the position, if you take that, uh, you know, a lot of people, Carl Truman and Charles Taylor and a lot of philosophers and theologians have been writing about the modern idea of selfhood yeah. and the extreme <laughs> expressive individualism that we have. Yeah. But if you combine that with that 
license, you yeah. know, that entitlement kind of thing with God, it really brings God down to the level where we're comfortable as yeah. a culture. And I think we as believers have to watch this trade in ourselves too, of effectively evaluating God, whether or yeah. not he is worthy yeah. of me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, that sounds harsh to say, but really there are a lot of things happening in our culture where you'd say, well, I can't believe in a God who would do this. Yeah. Or, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't this or would require yeah. this of me or who would allow that. That's a sense of what I think what you're talking about is bring God down to a certain level where I actually now feel comfortable judging God. Absolutely. It, it, there, there's, a, there's an over-familiarity. Uh-huh. There's a sense in which I have, he has now become at, at my behest. You know, right. I, now maybe this is, this is just a thing as you know, I get older, I, and, and, I, and I've taught my students this, and I, and I just contend, I, and maybe I'm a little too sensitive to it, but sometimes in church, um, when, when we pray, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't want to be negative here, but when we pray, Terry, sometimes if I've been in front of a group uh-huh. or, I'm, or I'm praying, and if I say, you know, we're pray- and then I say, and we ask this in Jesus' name, I have to pause. Right. I I can't just move into saying, now turn in your Bibles. Right. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, how do I go from talking to God to the audit to the group to the crowd? Yes, you're and, changing frames in a sense. Yeah. There. I mean, I am I talking to God? Am right. I really? Yes. And, and then. And can I say, and again, I, I don't mean to be unkind or charitable here, but can I go from saying, and we pray this in Jesus' name, hey, now, everybody. Yes. And, and, and so that eminence that doesn't include transcendence. Right. To say, now, slow down here just a little bit. I, I'll never forget, uh, it kind of was funny, my, uh, my dad was a pastor. Uh-huh. And he came <clears throat> to the church I pastored in Houston one time. And he was going to preach. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was on the platform with him. And one of my associates uh, prayed. And um, my dad is, is praying. We're praying along. And my dad knows I'm going to introduce him. And so my associate gets through praying. And again, I just have this need to pause. And I just, I'm just standing there, paused. And my dad's going, hey, aren't you going to introduce me? Aren't you going to introduce me? <laughs> he, he, he was all shook up. And, and, and I know that was a little uncomfortable for him. Uh-huh. But for me to kind of move through those movements of prayer and worship to God, uh-huh. to have enough of a pause to, to say, after I get through talking to God, I've got to disconnect here for just a second. Anyway. That, you know, that's an interesting point because it makes me think about the idea of liturgies, which there's been a lot of work in yeah. the theological and philosophical world about liturgies. But yeah. I'll just make a simple point. And this came up this weekend in Sunday school is that huh. every church has a liturgy. Oh, yeah. You know, if you think about the oh, evangelical, seeker-sensitive church, yeah. however you want to describe it, it's like... Well, we have two songs, we have announcements, we have a song, we have a bumper, we have yeah. uh, a sermon, a and sometimes we have... So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm not knocking that, no. and I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying you don't always think about it as a liturgy, right. 
but it is a liturgy. And some of what you're talking about, though, one of the downsides of liturgies that don't encompass what you're saying is mm-hmm. it can become a little too familiar. And I, I think that's an unintended oh, yeah. consequence. Well, I don't think about Nevertheless, that. some of the liturgies of old, yeah. you know, the Anglicans and Prayer so forth, confession. those were designed originally yeah. to have a little awareness of the awe of God and the transcendence of God. And we may have lost a little of that when we lost the liturgies too. Yeah. And again, it comes back to who are we talking to? What is this God like? Of course he is imminent. He's revealed himself in Christ that he cares and he loves us. He's also transcendent. He's the God that when John saw him in the book of Revelation, fell down like he was dead. Right. And so that, that this, this culture, this, church culture. I'm talking about church culture. I'm not talking about anything else. Yeah. That we've moved so far at times that are we so close to the flame that we are in some kind of peril to say, do you know you're dealing with here? Yes. So I, I, I do think that, that, that there's a, there's a theological need, not some scariness, not be afraid, not not some morbidity that needs right. to be injected, just a little more thoughtfulness. The fear of the Lord is the yeah. beginning of yeah. wisdom. Yeah, in a, in a very healthy way. You know where this comes down all the way where the rubber meets the road? I found myself uh, a, a few days back, my routine now in mm-hmm. my life. I know a lot of our listeners have little kids, and I had a different Bible reading routine. <laughs> you know, when I had a little, yeah, different phases of life, sure. you just have to roll with it. But right now, uh, I get to do Bible reading and all early in the morning. Mm. You know, have a cup of coffee, read Bible, which yeah. I think is the American Christian yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Have so a cup of coffee, read the Bible Absolutely. in the morning. I can <laughs> jot down a few thoughts on what what I'm reading, so I can actually spend a little quieter mm. time with God. Which mm-hmm. I realize people with little kids have to find right. that in other times. But that's been good for me. But you know, it's easy to slip into. Especially like when you're reading the Bible through. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to read a psalm. I'm going to read certain things. I'm going to write certain things down. I'm going to read my yeah. Greek New Testament. I'm going to do this. It can become a checklist. Yeah. And there's a sense in which I lose a little bit of the awe of, mm-hmm. I get to spend time with the creator of the universe for a little bit of time here. Yeah. And so I'm convicted personally by what you said, is that there are times when I've started introducing prayer Mm. at certain times Mm. to just pause and say, let's get our mind right before we start reading the Bible and just recognize who God is, who I am. That has enriched my time. Mm. I I don't know, but I had the temptation of, okay, these are things I need to get through. God didn't do a good job here as opposed to communing with God. And prayer yeah. seems to be the key for me. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, John Wesley, again, back to him, said that the primary means of grace that cannot be made up by the use of any others, of Bible study, the Lord's Supper, fasting, is prayer. Hmm. And, you know, part of our own, you talked about liturgy, about who is this God? What's he like? What, uh-huh. what is this God like? What is this God like? Um, I've incorporated the daily office. Yes. Where I have prayer at certain hours. And it is a reminder, again, uh-huh. who is this one? Again, reveling in his commitment to me in Christ and to the to the world in Christ. Uh-huh. But the one who spoke the universe into existence. So I think you're right that that having those other times it I I think it was Bart. I can't remember. I, was, I think I think it was Bart that said that 
the theologian cannot do theology apart from prayer. Mm. He, he says, you know, that, that, that theology cannot be done apart from prayer. And I just have kind of reveled in that to say, uh, I don't always do a great job at it. I, I yeah. still, still struggle. I get busy. I want to get this assignment done or this thing done or this thing worked out. But in those moments when I am more aware yeah. uh, to where I realize I am not dealing with something but someone you know, that's a really practical idea and a profound idea wrapped into one because everybody I know, including me, have gone through times where you wrestle with prayer. Not yeah. because you don't want to pray, not because your faith is weak, Yeah. but there's something about making time for prayer. It gets very devalued. I love that idea that you're doing of making set time. Yeah. Let's go back to an old idea in the church is that certain times you will do prayer. And there's yeah. something about that conscious interrupting your day yeah to turn to the transcendent, mm -hmm. that just might be a really good idea to jumpstart your prayer life. You know, a student kind of incited me to do that some years ago. Uh -huh. I was uh, meeting with him regularly early in the morning uh, with a discipleship group, and I didn't see him at a certain hour in the day. And I said, you know, where are you? He said, well, I, that's my the, the, the daily office. That and I just went, huh. Yeah. Maybe I ought to try that. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, I pray... The other thing is for me to not have to create anything. I pray Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1. Mm. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him. And then I pray, I bow my knee in, in Ephesians 3 to the Father yeah. of all, every family named of heaven. So I, it, it's it's part of that, that my, that my, that my understanding of question two of what, who is this God? Yeah, uh, does drive my behavior uh, uh, in terms of prayer of finding those other times. Again, I there are times when I get sidetracked, and I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that this is just a you know even sure yeah I mean you know, I yeah you understand that this comes out of yeah. being like everybody else and wrestling with this yeah. not holier than thou yes but I think that's a really good idea yeah. I don't know if Cole got you started on this but he got me started on it by persistent nagging and that is the Puritans <laughs> yes and so he and I've talked before about how I've been uh during the day at some point during the day not quite so structured but I'll read out of the Valley of Vision or one of the others mm -hmm. and I'll read a prayer of yeah. the Puritans uh, not to replace my own prayer, but you know, there's nothing wrong with reading and praying good prayers that have been prayed before us. Oh. But I know you're also being big into the reading of the Puritans. Has yes. that, has that uh, helped your theology in action? Oh, yeah. You know, um, what I discovered was Richard Baxter, mm -hmm. uh, who's a great Puritan, part of some of his uh, t writings on uh, aphorisms of the atonement, uh -huh. Wesley picked up on that. Uh -huh. And, of course, everything Wesley touched, he edited. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think, and I have that same book on, on Puritan prayers, uh -huh. that when I, as I read them more and more, I just detected a passion for God. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, when, when, when Richard Sibbs uh, writes the book, The, the Glory of, of Constant Beholding of Christ, yes. um, they, they just generated in me a an interest to say, 
I want to know Jesus like these guys know him. It's it's encouraging. It uh, it is throughout so, the centuries. Yes, you get Christians encouraging Christians, and they don't have to be alive today to do it. Exactly, and so that kind of praying, that kind of of uh, passion that they that I read in them, yeah, it's it's had something to do with that of of the daily office of of, de- of prayer. And then I I I just think. Uh, you know, for me at least, it, the way it's worked is that it's again brought me a little clearer and and a little more awareness of who this God is. Yes, who this God is. I yeah. one of my life verses, Terry, it, it is uh, John seventeen three, when Jesus says, "This is eternal life." Hmm. That they may know you, Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ. And he said, that word know, you know, that uh-huh. it means personal knowledge, intimate right. knowledge. And so to know God is theology. Right. And and if that is, I mean, that's Jesus saying this is eternal life. He's not, this is not some ancillary idea. This is it. Right. This is the essence. This of, is the yeah. essence that you might know him. Uh, so I have to take knowing God theology, who he is, or who God is, seriously. And um, that's been my life. Yeah, and not, not, uh, not a better way to spend your I'm, life. Well, I would be remiss if I let you get away from this conversation without asking you, and I didn't prepare you no. for this but I, because I know you're a big reader, no. and so don't uh, these don't have to no. be like the number one book, the number two, but if you think about someone who isn't that familiar with mm-hmm. theology, mm-hmm. you know, maybe never read a systematic theology book and yeah. has no desire to, mm. but just along the lines we're talking about, what are maybe two or three ideas of books that you feel like would be mm. good for people that... Just are dipping their toe yeah. into the idea of studying who God is, what He's about. Yeah. Uh, just any a couple of books that you might just recommend to people in that stage of life. Man, you know, if you want to just study who God is, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Yes, is I mean, it's I cut my teeth on that book years and years ago. So, in terms of of knowing God proper, uh-huh. um, Packer. Uh, although he and I would have some dis- differences mm-hmm. from our theological p- commitments, right. there's nothing like it. Right. Um, so in, in, in that kind of general uh, sense, um, I, I sort of like, um, for, if a person's getting into it, uh, Greg Boyd and, and uh, I can't remember the first, uh, Eddie wrote a book called Across the Spectrum. Mm-hmm which tries to help people understand the differences in theology, what we maybe reformed and maybe Wesleyan uh, on the sec- studies like salvation, predestination, mm-hmm. um, uh, the second coming. So it's not a theological proper, but it, it sort of lays out the territory. Right. Uh, and, and so if a person is just kind of, Wanting to get in to kind of understand well, there are there are differences of opinion here, right? And they're respectful, right? And so, um, I, I, you know, uh, I would I would recommend that mm-hmm. uh, for for one proper, you know, just a a. I don't know many people that just want to read a systematic theology. But what's a good one to start with? Because there are a lot yeah. out there. What what would you think Wayne, might be probably Wayne Grudem? Yeah, uh, it's probably his, one of the more 
it's accessible. Been popular forever. And it, yes. Yeah, it's accessible. Wayne Grudem, of course, I love, um, and it's more uh, of the church fathers. I love Tom Oden's classic uh, Christianity. Yes, uh, it's a great. It's 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 much more of the church fathers. It's much more history and the consensual right. teaching. Uh, but I love his work, uh, and cl- it's one volume now. It used to be three, uh, but but uh, his uh, classic Christianity is a is a solid solid. He 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 takes sources from everybody, you know? right? And, and he is good in this. I mean, he's good in a lot of ways. But one of the things I really appreciate about him, he's known as being into the church fathers. But I think that's a means to an end, and the mm-hmm. end is. There is and has been always a consensual core, right. biblical core of Christianity, yep. where there may be some disagreements on the fringes. I mean, there have right. been heresies that were just so wrong. Yeah. But effectively, amongst good-hearted Orthodox Christians, there are some disagreements on the fringes, but yes. there's been a core yes. of consistency. Yeah. And I like it that Odin dedicated, I think, a lot of his life to bringing that to the forefront. Absolutely. I yeah, that that kind of okay, what if Christian what if Christians believed? Right. You know, in, in terms of this consensus that is is what everyone is believed. So, yeah, I, so those would be what I do. And again, if you want to like are I say great suggestions to get started in. Yeah. And again, I you know, Grudem is probably as good as anybody to get going. Yes. Uh, but these other ones, I would I would really again, uh, if anybody's going to kind of start, I'd start with Packers. Um, yes. Um, or maybe Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Right. Which is smaller. Use both of those in groups to read yeah. a chapter and discuss oh. it. And that's a good way to go through some of those, too. I, I, I remember reading Tozer's uh, Knowledge of the Holy, and I literally, Terry, wept as I read those chapters. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, I thought, this is who God is. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Well, thanks, Cliff. This hey, has been interesting. This has and, been fun. Uh, as always. Yeah. yeah. And so, as I said, this is just one of our typical discussions. <laughs> That's right. Along That's those right. Lines, so. Well, I have to say as well, Terry, and I'm, it's a privilege to work here with you and to have this opportunity to have someone that is as well read as you are and it's well. thoughtful and thoughtful because I can use your insight and help to kind of help me understand, okay, here's some thoughts, Cliff, you ought to have. And so it's yeah. been a, a good relationship. It's been, it's, the community is a good thing. And we, if you don't know the layout where we office, this is the scholars. Uh, <laughs> the library. Somebody yeah, said. this is the library uh, is what we're called on this side of the hall. Yeah. And on the other side of the worship yeah, people. That's and, right. Uh, boy, they make some good sounds over there, Ooh. but tiny libraries. Tiny. Very tiny library. <laughs> God bless. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.